it must have been a really hard time for the nuns and monks who lived at the time of the Buddha when after 40 years of, of sharing his understanding of loving so profoundly in this world that he lay down for the last time to die and it was very clear to the people around him that he was dying and there are in the texts accounts of even some of the nuns and monks who were very evolved, enlightened arahants, as they called, it was really difficult for him, for them, that that he was going. This was the person who had inspired them so much. It was in his presence and and in his friendship, in the course of um, their relationship, that so many people awakened. There was so much understanding, and Ananda, who was the main disciple of the Buddha went to him and, and said to him, what are we going to do after you're gone? You know, it's going to be terrible. It's not going to be the same like a light that's gone behind the clouds. And, you know, if we might be so bold for a moment just to put ourselves in the place of the Buddha at that time, realizing that his every word was now being listened to so deeply. This was his sort of final teaching. And I'm sure that he wanted to offer the most helpful uh, advice at this time for the people that uh, he was going to leave behind. And in what is one of his most famous statements, he said to Ananda, his, his disciple, he said, so Ananda, each of you, once I'm gone, should be an island unto yourself. He said, dwell with yourself as a refuge and with no other, with no other as a refuge. Each of you should make the Dharma, the, the Dharma is, is the Pali Sanskrit word for the truth, the natural law of things. Each of you should make the truth your island. Each of you should dwell with the truth as your refuge and with no other as your refuge, with no other than the truth. And then he died the Buddha and that was his 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 final teaching and as I'm sure you know and agree with me this injunction to self-responsibility his final teaching is no small injunction to take the kind of responsibility that it feels that the spiritual journey requires of us, if you will, if I might use those words, um, can be so hard, can be so challenging. I mean, no matter what your spiritual paradigm, your spiritual reference might be, one can look in every direction and see that those who have chosen 
to grapple with the truth, to really come to some understanding, to see what it means to live with a heart that is liberated to love and to freedom, that it requires an enormous fortitude, an enormous resolve and courage to take this kind of responsibility. One thinks of St. John of the Cross and, you know, his incredible wranglings in what he called the dark night of the soul. Or I was reading this week about Job and the incredible suffering of his life where everything he had was taken away from him. And he was called to a kind of faith and self-responsibility that is sort of unimaginable. Rumi, in his early years, clearly wrote of this um, what page is that on? he He wrote of this wrangling and and thing. He said, "All day I think about it." And then at night I say it, where did I come from and what am I supposed to be doing? I have no idea. My soul is from elsewhere, I am sure of that, and I intend to end up there. This drunkenness began in some other tavern. When I get back around to that place, I will be completely sober. Meanwhile, I'm like a bird from another continent sitting in this aviary. The day is coming when I will fly off, but who is it now in my ear? Who hears my voice? Who says words with my mouth? Who looks out with my eyes? What is the soul? I cannot stop asking. If I could take one sip of an answer, I could break out of this prison for drunks. I didn't come here of my own accord, and I cannot leave that way. Whoever brought me here will have to take me home. I think of Christ's wrangling in the desert, the temptations of Christ when he was tempted by all of these um, um, possibilities that were offered by, uh, by Satan, by, by the forces of delusion. And even the Buddha, there are these stirring mythological accounts when he was standing and he said, okay, I will not get up. I'm going to sit under this tree and I will not get up. If my bones turn to dust, he said, that can happen. But unless I awaken, I will not be arising from this place. And he was fortunate that everything happened on that particular night. But in the course of that night, there are these really stirring accounts of how he was visited in the throes of, of his awakening by the forces of the mind that we know so well. I mean, it's all done mythologically about the daughters of Mara coming and tempting him, the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion that 
pelted him with like molten lava and rock and fire and flame and desire. And there's this great moment where at the end of this he reaches down, and you've probably seen it in some of the statues of the Buddha, where he touches the ground here. He's sort of sitting, he touches the ground, and he says, May the earth bear witness to my right to be free. Such a statement of self-responsibility. I have a right and the earth will be my witness. And it's said that like a lion's roar broke out and lightning and the lightning came and the earth shook and, you know, um, there was all this cataclysmic stuff just by the mere statement of his resolve, of his intention to awaken of that assumption of self-responsibility. I will not get up until I'm free. And then there are all these beautiful things of all the trees spontaneously burst into bloom and the stars fell from the heavens and, you know, he, he was awakened. Um, but it's no... I, I mean, I speak personally, it's so hard. And yet, as you, we all know, I mean, we come here together, we have this great blessing of one another here, and the Buddha acknowledged the incredible importance of doing this together. Along with that self-responsibility comes the imperative though, that we are not alone, that we do this together. There's this wonderful statement here, here it is, where Ananda again comes to the Buddha and said, you know, is it true that, that the, um, it seems to me that half of this holy life, half of the journey, is association with good and noble friends. And the Buddha said to Ananda, this was earlier on, before he died, he said, not so, Ananda, the whole of the holy life is association with good and noble friends with noble practices and with noble ways of living. So along with this self-responsibility is the association. So what a blessing that we have this afternoon, one afternoon, Friday afternoon a month, where we can come together in this beautiful place and remind one another that along with the self-responsibility is the fact that we are not alone that our resolve is shared in all the ways that it is. And it's hard for us to take this self-responsibility in a world that is so conditioned by the forces that assume an authority and a responsibility over us. It takes a kind of defiance, really, to contradict and to take a stand against all those forces both outside of us and within us that discourage us, that impede the kind of self-responsibility of which the Buddha spoke. And yet it is imperative. I mean, we can come here, be together, you know, we can offer, you know, instructions and we can sit, but nobody can bring us back again and again to the present moment. Only we can be willing to acknowledge a really 
apparently difficult thought, or only we ourselves can be stirred to find the capacity to be present with a really difficult emotion perhaps, or with an experience of heat or tightness in our bodies. Nobody can do it to us. And yet the, the situation is so poignant because so many of us um, grew up into a world where for whatever reason, the, the, just the nature of things, the, we perhaps were, were hurt and we were conditioned by that moment of hurt. We felt perhaps victimized by the circumstances of an event that maybe happened in our lives of whatever kind. And whatever the nature of that event, we are conditioned by it. And so we are wired by that. And as we grow up, we find ourselves experiencing again and again a kind of docility to the circumstances of life. We perhaps feel victimized by something that arises. We feel like we're powerless, that we don't have a choice, that it's kind of, um, that it's being perpetrated on us. And that flies absolutely and directly in the face of the kind of self-responsibility that the Buddha and the awakened women and men of history are talking about. And so how is it that we can take the kind of responsibility that is being called for in lives where it's sometimes really difficult to call up from within us this kind of assumption of courage and, and, um, and resolve. And certainly in my experience, the relationship with the process of thinking is fundamental to the possibility of taking responsibility. And what I'd like to do, if I may, is I asked Karen if she would give us this candle as a way, personally, certainly, and if you wish, you can certainly join me, of just acknowledging that what we're talking about is really difficult. It's damn hard. and. Personally, certainly, it's something that I am working with, that I certainly am resolved to work with, but that it's really difficult. So none of us are, are masters or authorities. We're all struggling in the same fire, and I thought it might be nice just to have an acknowledgement of that um, as we proceed here. Remember the old days when I used to have my talks all, you know, all done and I, you know, well, it seems like for whatever reason that's no longer the case. So what we have is <laughs> this and this, and hopefully it's all going to come together with some coherence. But what I do do is when something feels really important, I write it down so that um, um, I don't forget it. And one of the things over the years of meditation that I have seen again and again and am more and more stirred by this what is called insight. You know, the practice of meditation that we do is insight. Just by willing to look, just 
just hearing, just a sound, can there be just a sound with no words? Can there be just an experience of the energy of anger with no drama, no storm and drum, just anger, just a sound, just a taste, just a thought, just a thought, just a thought, no more personal than that sound. And one of the things I'm becoming increasingly excited about for myself is that if I believe that a particular thought has any inherent power, then it will. If I believe that a thought has any inherent power, then it will have power. And the practice of meditation, if it is a practice of liberation and not a practice of expedience or just making us feel a little better, if it is a practice of insight, inquiry, interest, we must come to see increasingly deeply that thoughts have no power unless we believe that they do. It is our relationship with thoughts that either give them power or strip them of power completely. This is so important. I speak not to you, I speak to us, because I'm affirming it for myself too here. And it seems to me increasingly that one of the stumbling blocks, one of the pitfalls in this whole landscape of thinking and the perception of thoughts and the awareness of thoughts is that the fear which can so define our lives from time to time in gross ways, in the most subtle ways, can have us be rather superstitious human beings, where we have this notion, no matter how subtle it is, that the mere existence of a thought says something about the thinker. So if I have a bad thought, a so-called bad thought, somehow that reflects back on me. And although this sounds gross and a little simplistic, I feel it is important and it goes to the essence of what freedom it is. Because if we, to any extent, are cowering and cringing in the presence of the thoughts that appear in our mind, then we are in prison. We are in bondage and we are not free. That is the experience, I believe, of hell. And the important thing for me always to remind myself is that it's not about something coming from outside of me, that it's about something that has arisen in the mind and about my relationship. However, if the same thought arises and there is presence, there is awareness, I can, there, there can be an awareness of it with, and I don't believe that it's me because it's just a thought, like just a sound. Then it arises, it passes away, it leaves no shadow, it reflects not on the thinker, I'm not in prison, and what potentially could have put me in bondage becomes a vehicle for liberation. So important, and such are the possibilities 
of this process of thinking. How are we doing so far? Okay? Okay. <laughs> now, there are pitfalls in the meditation practice. And one of them that is very important to acknowledge is that when the instructions are offered, there can be, and it certainly happened for me in the earlier years of my practice, some sort of notion, albeit subtle even, that there's something wrong with thinking. That if we're thinking, we're not doing it right, and we're bad. I mean, has this, has this happened to anybody? <laughs> okay. So it's really important to acknowledge that this is not the instruction. There is nothing wrong with thinking. We're human beings, and human beings think. And as far as I understand, the most so-called evolved people I've met are all thinking. Okay? <laughs> and probably the Buddha even did some thinking himself. So there's nothing wrong with thinking. And so the purpose of meditation is not about the elimination of thought, ever. It's about our relationship with the process of thinking. Are we all together? Because we're going to go into this thicket a little bit more, but I don't want to do it if there's anything that's unclear. Okay, let me get some lubrication here. So how is it that in the moment when a, self a potentially self-crucifying thought arises, can we be aware of that in that instant so that it cannot even bring a moment of fear or a moment of energy with it? Have you had that experience where you like think of somebody and then immediately there's anger and you suddenly find yourself embroiled in a cauldron of things and you're the same woman or man that was there like five seconds before that person could even be dead but here you are embroiled in the anger how is it that we can be we can bless ourselves we can love ourselves with the capacity to be that present that that thought is going to be like Teflon. It's going to come, it's going to go like those sounds outside there. And my sense, no, personally for me, what I have found to be one of the greatest friends to this capacity, along with, you know, meditation practice or whatever it is we do, we practice awareness, we school the mind in being present. I mean, all these things that we do again and again here together and perhaps at home, you know, just cultivating this capacity to be more present and less diffused. I think supporting that so much is what personally and increasingly these days feels like the irrevocable clarity of intention that freedom here and now is the most important thing of this life. So being absolutely clear 
about what the priority is. It's not about, for me, about living a long life. It's about living a life that matters, about living a life that is worthwhile, being present, loving, here and now. And it feels like as that, that clarity of intention, as that clarity of resolve becomes more and more foundational, those thoughts, when they arrive, have nowhere to land because the resolve to be free of the tyranny of thoughts that for many of us have mediated and informed our life and have crucified us in so many ways, it becomes untenable because our intention unwaveringly becomes more and more directioned towards freedom here and now. Kind of in our own little way the well, no, in the same way, the gesture of the Buddha, let the earth bear witness to my right to be free here and now. I will no longer be mediated by the fear that accompanies these thoughts. I will not cringe in the face of thinking. And so, as this response to the poignancy of human life becomes more and more foundational and as we no longer are mediated by these thoughts that terrify us what must begin to happen is we begin to find or we begin to experience a relationship with ourselves that was never there before it was almost like the the relentlessness of those thoughts removed us from an experience of ourselves that is the yearning that brings us here together, that, that has us questioning, and that has us resolved to know something better than this. There's this wonderful Palestinian poet, Naomi Shihab. This is the way she puts it. She says, and you know, speaking from this place of, you know, depth of, of alignment within, she says, when they, well, let me, you don't want to hear my words, you want to hear hers. When they say, don't I know you, say no. When they invite you to the party, Remember what parties are like before answering. Someone telling you in a loud voice that they wrote a poem. Greasy sausage balls on a paper plate. Then reply. If they say we should get together, say why. It's not that you don't love them anymore. You're trying to remember something too important to forget. Trees, the monastery bell at twilight. Tell them you have a new project. It will never be finished. When someone recognizes you in the grocery store, nod briefly and become a cabbage. And when someone you haven't seen in 10 years appears at the door, don't start singing him all your new songs. You will never catch up. 
walk around feeling like a leaf. Know that you could tumble any second and then decide what to do with your time. One of my um, teachers, my beloved teacher, is a man called Joseph Goldstein, who has just read a book called One Dharma. And he's a man who um, was deeply foundationed in the beginning, in most of the years of his practice, in uh, a particular tradition of Buddhism where this practice that I've offered today comes from. But over recent years, he's, he's got increasingly involved in practices of the Tibetan tradition. And he's also had some practice in the Zen tradition. And he's found himself again and again. And over the years, he's told me a lot about this, about, you know, well, sometimes it seems like these practices are contradicting and that, you know, the Rinpoche says this thing and the Sayadaw from Burma says that thing and the Zen master says this and they're all different and what do I do? And it was really, really hard for him and out of his own struggle with that and realizing that each one of these people was offering, you know, deep and profound wisdom from a place of unfathomable understanding. And out of this came this book called One Dharma where, you know, he speaks of the importance of, of, um, of doing whatever works and of taking the kind of responsibility where we don't become dilettantes and we do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that, but that we try, we look, we listen, we allow things to resonate, we develop the capacity to be uncomfortable, and in the process we begin to calibrate our own particular unique and beautiful path through into the mystery and wherever we are meant to go taking that kind of responsibility. It is so easy to feel comfortable in the meditation practice. I have people who say to me, students who say to me, ah, oh, I'm sitting for two hours a day. And there's a sort of like a feeling of accomplishment and pride. It's almost like if I can do two hours a day, then it kind of takes care of the rest of the day. It seems like what is being called for is 24-7 with such tenderness and such love and such unwavering, relentless resolve that is as gentle and as sweet as the sound of the birds. One Dharma, it's a really beautiful book. And, you know, yeah. Okay, let me just feel into How are we doing? Are we okay? Not only, hopefully, do we become more and more like Naomi, but 
it is my experience that as we become less coerced into the drama of the thinking process, that we become a lot less self-centered, not meaning that, you know, we're selfish and that, but meaning that we don't refer everything so much towards ourselves. A thought comes up and it comes and it goes, and it's not about my fear and my history and this happened to me and that, that things just become easier. We become more, uh, you know, perhaps in the meditation instructions, at the end, you've got a sense of just a thought, just a sound, just an emotion, just a memory, just anger, just fear, a taste, a touch. It's almost like we're cresting this wave that is enduringly birthing itself and has no end. You know, when Christ spoke of the eternal life, it's this timeless unfolding of life that if we truly are going to to be residents in the only place where life is lived, there's no security, there's no solid ground, there's no foundation beneath our feet. It's just this unfolding, the Tao, moment to moment. And as we no longer hoodwinked into uh, giving energy to thoughts, to apparently making them real, this flow of life can begin to reveal itself more and more, so much more and more. And then in this flow there is just a presence. It's not effortful, it's not hard or difficult. There is just presence, there is just awareness, and such an experience of love. You know, I think the last time I was here when I spoke about my time in the critical care unit in Honolulu and that experience when they were doing that bronchoscopy of the love, it was, uh, was there anybody that was not here? Okay, I'll just give, can I give a synopsis? It was a very difficult procedure and it was a procedure that um, uh, the doctor told me that it could be fatal, but that if they didn't have the information, that also could be fatal. And so, you know, that was the choice. We decided to proceed, and the procedure involved a um, this tube with a ball going up my nose and through the sinuses, down my throat, into the lungs, where they could squirt water and draw it out and look around to see what was going on. And um, it was, you know, it was very painful. And as we were making our way through the sinuses, it was like I was just blessed with this knowing. It wasn't a thought, it was a knowing that my job was clear. All I had to do was be present. I had all these people and all these monitors and all of this activity going on, and my job was to be present. And so I felt like every moment of coming back, every moment of beginning again, of being present, was there in the hospital bed in that moment. And so I was with that thing. I felt my sinuses as he was going through. And I'd had... Uh, 
I've just remembered, I had some sinus surgery about 10 years ago, and he was so nice, this doctor, and he said, oh, we have some interesting architecture here. <laughs> and he's like pushing it, you know, we're trying to get past it. And it was like, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. But then what began to happen was my body just turned into light and into love. It was amazing. There was just this incredible experience of love. As I was with this, sensation by sensation, as the journey of this pipe continued through my body. And then it was like I looked at the doctor and he like went into light. And the two nurses on either side of the bed, they went into light. And then there were all of these angels in the room. And the whole room was just saturated with these angels that were like translucent, very light green, almost the color of, of your blouse, Anita. And the amazing thing, and the only reason I can tell this to you today, as I mentioned last time, and as I also mentioned at the retreat, I realized, I'll stop telling the story, <laughs> um, is that that love was completely impersonal. It had nothing to do with Gavin. It had nothing to do with something that was generated. It's what was always there, and it was almost like a portal opened, blessedly, and I was able to, to see what, was what is always there for all of us. And it just shook me as deeply as I believe I've ever been shaken. And it had nothing to do with me. Nothing. And this selflessness, I feel, this, you know, when Rumi was saying in his poem here, um, where are they? Thank you. It's like a sick joke, isn't it? I can't, <laughs> can't see my glasses. He says, I'm like a bird from another planet sitting in this aviary. And he says, you know, when I get back around to that place where I come from, I'll be completely sober. I will see what is there. I will see what is there. And certainly in my experience, and I think I can speak generally, maybe even universally, just from my understanding of the teachings of others, that our relationship with thinking is so fundamental, so fundamental to the landscape that we're talking about. And then, of course, the mind comes up, you know, and it says, I need more time, you know, maybe I'll do a long retreat or something, you know, and then the absolute, the voice of God comes down from here and says, now, now, and then the mind says, you know, I'm not ready you know, uh, maybe I'll do the retreat next week with Gavin and we see. And then in the meantime, I'll do this, that, or the other. And that meantime, I think, is the greatest violence, spiritual violence, that we can do to ourselves. Because in the meantime, we can die. We can make choices that hurt us. We can hurt one another, 
and we postponing, we postponing, we postponing. And the voice of the absolute, of freedom, of everything is saying, now, 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 now. And so perhaps for you, like me and many of us, we have these notions, however subtle they may be, that, you know, I'll wait until there's a descent of grace. You know, I'll wait until there's an experience. I'll, I'll wait till things calm down. I'll wait till my mother goes home. Or I'll wait till I've done this particular psychological piece, you know. And yet, at some point, at some moment, when we put our hands down and ask the earth to bear witness, then we say, no matter what it is that's going on, I will not make my freedom conditional upon the content of my experience any longer. And I will be resolved to be in the present moment, even though I may rarely be there, that will be my resolve. And I think that our intention to do that is all, our willingness is all that is called for. And the rest is in the flow of things. Just our willingness to begin again and again and again. And stop waiting for something else to happen. So, I always, of course, as you know, go to Hafiz when I'm in trouble. And I'd like to just ask you to join me in envisioning what it would be like to live that immediately, that spontaneously, and that wildly, that we don't go into situations where we try to think beforehand what we're going to do. We just get to trust that by being there as totally as possible, we will respond with all the love and wisdom that is necessary. What it means to live in this way. And Hafiz was certainly one of our elders who clearly was able to do that. I think so anyway, my sense is. He says, running through the streets, screaming, throwing rocks through windows, using my own head to ring great bells. He says, pulling out my hair, tearing off my clothes, tying everything I own to a stick and then setting it on fire. What else can I do tonight to celebrate the madness, the joy of seeing God everywhere? May we sit together for a moment, please.
closing, I'd like to offer you some words of Rumi. Very much on what it is that exploring this afternoon. And Rumi was tough sometimes. And this, I think, is one of his tougher poems. He said, these spiritual window shoppers who idly ask, how much is that? Oh, I'm just looking. They handle a hundred items and put them down, shadows with no capital. What is spent is love and two eyes wet with weeping. They walk into a shop and their whole lives pass suddenly in that moment in that shop. Where did you go? Nowhere. What did you have to eat? Nothing much. Even if you don't know what you want, buy something to be a part of the general exchange. Start a huge foolish project like Noah. It makes absolutely no difference what people think of you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.